Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Chris Clem was the Border Patrol chief in Yuma, Arizona, the Yuma sector. And through his career, he has seen what has transpired on the border and with Border Patrol and with legislation that has made the job tougher and tougher and tougher and more and more political. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today, continuing Border Week, presented by Americans for Prosperity, americansforprosperity.org. Chief Chris Clem, uh, former uh, Border Patrol uh, chief there of the Yuma sector, spoke to me about the politics involved and how things changed over the years, starting from his days in Border Patrol with the Clinton administration. If you were talking about starting in the Clinton administration... Yeah. And working your way through the Biden administration, was it a slow, gradual decline in your view in terms of needs and uh, addressing needs for the border? Or was it uh, fits and starts and highs and lows like your career itself? Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's uh, break it down even further. If you go back to 1994, when they uh, they passed the crime bill, the crime bill that uh, uh, during the State of the Union address, uh, President Clinton at the time you know, talked about putting 5,000 uh, uh, law enforcement on the streets. And that included border guards. That was his language, border guards. And it was based off of uh, then a uh, former congresswoman, Barbara Jordan's, you know, uh, big, uh, big push on immigration and illegal immigration reform. And so um, I was hired under that. So that was the first push to say, hey, we need to get illegal immigration under control. And so it was it was people under Clinton. And I was hired under that. Um, we were coming off the heels of uh Operation Gatekeeper and Hold the Line, where they built the first chain link fences along the border, was the first real big step. Some old Vietnam era landing mat to control this this huge flow of people, and it was mainly at the time, early in my career, Mexican nationals coming uh, coming looking for work and a lot of seasonal immigration that you could trace back for fifty years. People coming in based on seasons. As it progressed, uh, obviously, we had the horrors of 9-11, which brought everybody together to say, hey, we've got to look at this even even great, greater, like right? from immigration perspective, visa problems to border security. And uh, uh, George Bush uh, pushed a lot of infrastructure. Uh, it's where we began building a lot more hardened walls and barriers because back in the early 2000s, uh, we had a lot of people driving across the border. And so we put a lot of uh, Normandy-style vehicle barriers up along the border to prevent that that mode of transportation into the United States. Um, and then under under Obama, uh, we built a lot of wall. Um, it was legacy policies and, and laws and appropriations under Bush, but Obama continued to do that. And let's let's go back in time to the beginning of uh, President Obama's second term in 2012. There was a big push for comprehensive immigration reform. And uh, so the, the the left and the right said, OK, we'll give you that, but you've got to give us border security. So if you meet the border security standards, then we will pass something uh, in, in, in regards to reform. And uh, so they did. And we built a lot of wall and we removed a lot of people and we rounded up a lot of criminal aliens across the country. Um, and and things were going in the right direction. And then uh, politics got really involved and people argued over the definition of control. What was control of the border? What did that mean? And uh, and then President Obama, I think he's, that was an infamous cell phone and a pen uh, a conversation and uh, an executive fiat. And I was actually in Washington, D.C. as one of the leads for Customs and Border Protection to execute 
under President Obama's uh, uh, executive orders. And and so, yeah, everybody was making progress. Then we kind of then, then it got pol- political. It got political at the latter part of, of the Obama administration. And and as an agent, now I was up in Washington, D.C. So you're D.C. at the time. So you're in the mix of it. I mean, you can't ignore politics when you're in Washington. But the agents itself and the agency didn't want to get involved in that. Then comes candidate Trump. And it was about building the wall. And um, and that was a campaign slogan, build the wall. And for us as agents, it was a wall system. It was a wall package. It was so much more than uh, a brick and mortar. It was technology. It was access roads. It was cameras. It was policies that would help us really secure that border because we started seeing that lag at the last few years of of President Obama. While he was pushing it, then he kind of flatlined it. Um, well, when uh, it became President Trump and we implemented all the the requirements that we had, things were things were going great. I mean, the numbers uh, of people that were coming in uh, had had dropped. Uh, we were having a great time as as an agency because we had the tools we needed to do our job. And I would say that it was a kind of the 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 climax of my career was that those few years under President Trump. Now, I, w- I will say this. Um, the policies were effective, but I like to say clunky, but effective. I mean, we we had to start stop a lot of times because things weren't ironed out yet. You know, uh, they were people were so quick to get out there and do something. Um, but uh, it made a difference when you had the infrastructure in place. You had the policy in place, you know, and, and the support coming from the White House to say, hey, we're we're knocking this down. We're tired of this. Um, boy, it was a great time to be a border patrol agent. Even, even so, let's yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Let let let's let's go back just for a minute before yeah. we start really digging on the concept of the wall itself. Mm-hmm. The idea that politics got involved in yeah. your view, in the view of other border, border patrol agents that you uh, spoke with, what were the politics? Yeah. So it was it was you know. Uh, so the campaign, right, it really kind of got involved. Well, we'll start with the uh, with uh, President Obama uh, when as soon as they uh, that administration started kind of putting the migrants and giving a uh, migrant, those that have been here illegally kind of a pass or, well, if they're if they're going to come over here and try to reunite with family you need to to let them go. Right. And it's like, wait a second. That's not what the law says. We have to prosecute them. We have to process them. There's things we have to do. And they kind of started meddling, if you will, into the day to day operations because they wanted to control that narrative. Then comes Is along meddling the same as micromanaging. Yeah, I would say that. Right. Because, look, you know, we, it's a kind of a, a known saying for any of the of the agencies that uh, are based out of D.C. is that 3000 mile screwdriver. You know what what law says and what policy says is what we would operate under there in in the field. But then all of a sudden they reached out with that screwdriver and said, no, 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 you're going to do it this way because, you know, the executive branch has that authority by, you know, by under the Constitution to to execute those things. Well, it would really frustrate us because we knew what was right and wrong. But then, wait, well, hold on a second. We're going to do it this way. Why? Why are we catching these people and releasing them? Why aren't we detaining them and letting them go through an adjudication process, which is better for everybody? Okay, so they may be detained for a a few weeks or months, but they're going to get a decision. 
you know, and then if the decision is to let them stay, they can continue with the process. If the decision is they have to be removed, then they get removed and they get to the back of the line and try again. Um, so that's that began the latter part of the Obama administration. Then it became campaign candidate Trump. Right. And so he was building the wall. Right. And that was his campaign. So now everything associated with candidate Trump wall became border patrol the world was opened a whole new like what is this agency that he's talking about not a lot of people really knew about the border patrol and what we did unless you were along the border and uh and so that was kind of a, a big thing for us it put us in the limelight um we had kind of been just taking care of business you know we're we're a, a different breed of federal agents you know we just like to go out there and do our job we ride horses for a living sometimes you know um you know, then, of course, some of us like me, you know, we're in the office more times than we were in the field. But, uh, uh, yeah, it was it became political. Then it became the think about the first few years of the Trump administration. Uh, he, once he lost control of the his party, no longer had the House. They were going after him. Everything that he was doing, you know, right. and became a big thing. Right. And look, I can tell you this. I was the deputy chief of El Paso. Uh, during the Trump administration, uh, the midway through the administration, and uh, and and El Paso was pretty much ground zero for the border crisis that began uh, in nineteen. I couldn't turn around without tripping over a Democratic congressional delegation coming down to figure out what was going on. I mean, it was it was one or once or twice a week, like there was dozens of members of Congress wanting to ask every question, turn over every stone to see what was going on, um, and and that impacts the business flow of the operations for the border patrol when agents have to, you know, watch what they're doing because Congress is coming to look and taking pictures. And, you know, it just became so political. It's like, look, look we just want to do our job. We want to well, do, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. One of the things uh, talking to uh, former border patrol chief, uh, Chris Clem, uh, Yuma sector, one of the things that became political right away is the concept of the wall. Never mind the whole Mexico is going yeah. to pay for it. Yeah. But the idea of a wall, we were told you can climb over it, you can dig under it, you can cut through it. Uh, the question for America is, do walls work? And so as a man who has experienced it, saw the construction of it, dealt with it in different sectors, Yuma sector being much different yeah. than Rio Grande Valley or El Paso, do walls work? And if so, how? Yes, so walls do work when they're, uh, uh, you know, uh, when we put them where we need them, right? Um, there hasn't been an agent uh, that I'm, I've ever met that says, hey, we need a 2,000-mile wall, wall from the Gulf Coast to the Pacific Ocean. We need it where it makes sense. And, and allow me to, uh, to kind of break this down a little bit. The wall, as it's designed based on our requirements, is to deny or impede access into the United States or control and contain access into the United States. There are places where it's right there on the border and there's places where we have to kind of concede based on river boundaries and things like that. And it's very, very important when we have urban areas along the border, San Diego, El Paso, places in Arizona, where we have determined that the vanishing point for somebody that enters illegally is seconds to minutes. You've ever been to a border town, El Paso, San Diego area, those are great examples where they can jump the fence, cross the river, and be in a neighborhood or a high school or an apartment complex in seconds. So that's where you need that wall to slow them down. And when you combine that wall with technology in the form of cameras and sensors to help agents do their job, that's where it really makes sense. So where we have put wall in those areas where we have a, a very short vanishing time 
it has made a huge difference. It has given us the tactical advantage to do our job, and it's made areas safer. I mean, you can't refute it when you look at crime results in, in like El Paso, uh, Texas. It's one of the most safest cities in America. A lot of it has to do with what we've done at the border. Um, so people really when we talk about the wall and as you're discussing it, it isn't about stopping people because they're already in the United States in a lot of these places, especially when you talk about Rio Grande Valley. I've been in McAllen. The wall is is a mile, a mile and a half inland. And you get you get completely freaked out when the first time you see yeah, that and you yeah. realize it's not on the border. But you look at the winding nature of the Rio Grande. There's a moment where you could be in Texas, but south of Mexico. Right, That's right. the level of winding of, yes. of, of that sector. But the objective here is to slow people down to apprehensions. That is not something that gets discussed publicly. Why has there been no uh, real push to explain why that is so valuable to people like yourself and those in Border Patrol? Well, I think oftentimes it becomes uh, it, it can be a very emotional and divisive issue um, that can get uh you know, captured by uh, uh, political uh, uh, politicians and or uh, certain uh, media outlets, right? They want to stoke that fire. And so if you tell the truth and say, this is why it's designed, it's there to give us a tactical advantage to help us slow down so we have a better chance of making an arrest to prevent bad people and bad things from coming in, you know, that, then that makes sense, right? But if you if you just say, you know, this this kind of this false choice of, you know, you either have a wall or you don't have a wall, they're either going to get over there or it's either going to work or not work, Look, it's a combination of things. You know, um, the wall slows them down. When you have the, the people in place and the technology in place, then you can make those arrests. And and look, if, you, if you've been to those areas of the border where you've seen this 30-foot wall with uh, the last six feet having this anti-climb, look, it's very few people that can physically get over there without assistance. And so when you have the camera and the sensor Look in there and you see somebody trying to make that um, that uh, attempted illegal entry, you can respond and you can make the result. But without that wall, they're, they're going to go and they're going to vanish and they're going to be those gotaways, which we've known we've had a million and a half gotaways in the last three years. So we need to continue to push. The only way we're going to get a better chance at securing this border is to continue what we started. Yeah, you know, we can we can smooth it out a little bit and make some some adjustments, but we need to finish that infrastructure packet that we pack, uh, packet that we began a few years ago. And um, and when you have you know a secure border, then it makes sense to expand lawful legal pathways for people to come in the right way. Because they know the wrong way, you're gonna, you're not gonna be able to make it as easy. I know? think, I think it interesting that you you ranked them. I, I do this often. Um, you have to get this done before you can get to the to the next thing. Is that a position of you personally, Chief Clem, or is that a position uh, of of Border Patrol that once you do this, then you can get the other things going? But you got to start here, and I think that's where Americans are in in yeah. great measure. You got to start with securing the border. Yeah. Well, so that's my opinion. Uh, but I will tell you that uh, I'm a border security expert, not an immigration expert. I mean, there there are two different things in my book and, and the Border Patrol's book. We we're we have immigration authority. We have to process immigration cases. But our job is to secure the border. I, I you know what happens to somebody after we are done uh, adjudicating our piece, whether they're released, processed, turned over, removed. That's that's outside. Of, that's immigration. My job is to catch anything and everything that comes in between the ports of entry, or at least my job was. But yes, uh, Border Patrol agents are going to say, hey, let's secure that border first. But Because you can go back to, to historical programs where you've added an easier, more efficient way to bring people in. 
you'll see a, a correlation to a decline in illegal entries because people sometimes just want to come here and work. You can go back to the 50s and 60s on the Bracero program and do that. But back to your point, yes, as a Border Patrol agent, and, and in my opinion, we have to start with a secure border. I mean, that's that's it's a foundation, just like when you're building a home. You have to get the foundation right or everything else will crumble. And we've experienced that over the last few years, actually the last several decades, because we will the government's great at building band-aids. Hey, we'll do this. We'll do that. But get that foundation right. Secure that border. And I think that opens up. It takes that piece off the table. So then maybe some of our common sense folks can go, hey, what what does business need? What do the communities need? What do we need to continue healthy, lawful immigration to continue to make America prosperous and grow? But if you don't have that foundation of a secure border and that's things are going to crumble because we can we can do all the things we want, uh, you know, militarily, everything around the world. However, there's always going to be threats. So we've got to get that secure. Last thing I'll say on that point, Tony, is look, everywhere around this country, you have people that live in gated communities. You have locks on your front door. You have locks in your bedroom. If you're fortunate enough to have a bathroom in your bedroom, you got to lock on that door. But we will argue and we will become divisive and we will name call and finger point if we want to put a lock on our front door and just say, hey, come in the right way. You just come in the right way. Don't come in illegally. That keeps us secure. We just want to know who you are. Don't come in illegally. We will, we will make that such a divisive issue. And I like to call it tall fences and wide gates. We need to have a country of tall fences, which is our border security, and then wide gates, which would be the lawful pathways for people to come in the right way. So we know who they are and what your intentions are. And, and that's the way we should be looking at it. And that's my opinion. But that's kind of where I see the success going if, if we can get there. My thanks to former Border Patrol Chief uh, Chris Clem. These conversations will continue, and you can find everything about Border Week presented by Americans for Prosperity, americansforprosperity.org, at tonycats.com. Much more to get to. This is Tony Katz today. You can call me anything or anything you want. Just don't call me yours. The latest polling from Bloomberg Morning Consult? Sure. In Arizona, Trump versus Biden, Trump plus four. Georgia, Trump versus Biden, Trump plus six. Michigan, Trump plus four. Nevada, Trump plus three. North Carolina, Trump plus nine. Pennsylvania, Trump plus two. Wisconsin, Trump plus four. It's showing that Trump beats Biden in the head-to-heads. However, the polling, if we look at 2020, when we look at results didn't skew that way it skewed more biden's way so are the plus fours the plus threes and the plus twos enough now i don't think for the 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 trump supporter they're going to be concerned about this and certainly if you're a biden fan you're you are concerned about this you're saying this is proof that biden needs to be off the ticket as if democrats need any more cajoling or or you know proof that biden simply is not a good candidate He's not. He is, th- he is seen as weak. He's seen as ineffective. Well, Tony, the economy's doing so much better. The stock market's up and inflation's over. Oh, okay. Sure. No, no, no. Sell that and let's see how it goes to keeping Biden on the ticket. I think Biden stays to the convention. I think if a change is made, it's made at the convention because Democrats will do anything. You've always been right about this. They'll do anything. These are good numbers for Trump. Do you believe him? Ah, different question. This is Tony Katz today. 
I share with you now the latest and the greatest from the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris. <laughs> Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. I, I, I want to warn you. Um, I have no idea what she's talking about. I have absolutely no idea what it is that Kamala Harris is discussing here. I'm telling you now, I know that she's in Warsaw. It is a a, a presser with the president of, of, of Poland. This is this is part of a of, of a press conference. I'm trying to figure out why she's even saying anything. Well, which I'm always trying to uh, 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 figure out. Here it is. I give it to you now. You tell me. We all watched the television coverage of just yesterday. That's on top of everything else that we know and don't know yet based on what we've just been able to see. And because we've seen it or not doesn't mean it hasn't happened. But just limited to what we have seen. I have no idea. I don't. I. I. Uh. I. Uh. uh, Loud noises. Exactly. I have no clue what it is she's trying to say there. I don't know what we're yelling about. I don't. Every single time she thinks she's. She must think. That that is an intellectual pursuit. The way she she talks, the way she does that, and the clip is is from CBS News. I'm telling you, I have no idea what she's saying, what she's referring to, at all. I wish I did, because I think that'd be kind of important to bring it to you. No clue. So much so that like I'm I'm looking it up and I'm like, wait, is this from 2022? Because I can find a March 10th, 2022 uh oppressor going on. I could I could find that. And and there's the the president. I think that's what it's from. Why is this now news? The I because because that's the outfit she's wearing. That's that's clearly it. So why is this now making the rounds? I don't know. I don't know. It's so weird that it's making the rounds now. This thing is is over a year old. But it just it just plays into the you want to know why the Democrats are going to completely step over her when they replace Joe Biden on the ticket? You you need to know why? Okay, we'll do it again. The television coverage of just yesterday. That's on top of everything else that we know and don't know yet based on what we've just been able to see. And because we've seen it or not doesn't mean it hasn't happened. But just limited to what we have seen. No chance. They're going to walk. They're going to step right over her. Oh, so if you see that thing trending, that thing is 
is over a year old. I have no idea why it's making its way now, except reminders, maybe not even to us, to the Democratic Party that that she's just not capable. And then, of course, there's the ever-classic, oh, dear Lord, Joe Biden, you didn't just say that, did you? Harris-Biden administration. You have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. Got hairy legs that turn, that, 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 that turn uh, um, blonde in the sun. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women created by the, go, you know the, you know the thing. Say what? Now this one is also a few years old, but this one is a flashback one that's purposeful. This goes back to 2021, October of 2021, to be precise, when, of course, everyone's talking about the January 6th committee, and these people aren't going to listen to the subpoena, and those people aren't going to listen to the subpoena, and a reporter is asking Joe Biden, what do you think should happen to people who don't listen to a subpoena? What's your message to people who defy congressional subpoenas on the January 6th committee? I hope that the committee goes after them and uh, holds them accountable. Do they be prosecuted by the I, Justice I do, Department? yes. Now, this is interesting because Hunter Biden defied a congressional subpoena. Hunter Biden refused to show up, had the press conference in front of the Capitol, did not attend the the hearing where he was subpoenaed. So, based on the words of the vice president of the United... I'm sorry, president of the United States. I forget sometimes that we're living in the now. uh, Should he be prosecuted? And the answer is yes, and clearly, and without question, because the president said so. Now, I don't argue uh, the idea if you want to not go to, you know, pay attention to subpoena. Go ahead. Don't pay attention to subpoena. You got to deal with what comes. Maybe get prosecuted. Maybe you won't. But isn't it amazing how there is no, there's never even a question of whether or not you have a, th- a through line of thought. No, no, this is just what we say. This is just what we say when we're talking about those people over there, those Republicans over there. When we're talking about Democrats, well, it's it's very different because when Democrats are subpoenaed, clearly it's because the Republicans are acting improperly. But when the Democrats subpoena Republicans, it's because they're protecting democracy. You people are twisted. Not you, them. Then there was number three. This was a piece that I grabbed off of X. Of course, you can find me on Twitter X. At Tony Katz, very easy to do. This was Daniel Horowitz, senior editor at The, at the Blaze. Uh, he's got uh, the CR podcast. Um, uh, he's, he's got a book he's written with Steve Deese called The Rise of the Fourth Reich. Um, confronting COVID fascism with a new Nuremberg trial so this never happens again. I mean, that's a that's a pretty heavy concept right there. But here's what he's got. He has got this data point 
from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, this from St. Louis Fed.org. Civilian labor force with a disability 16 years and, and older. Hold on. I want to make, I want to see if I can get to this right here. Cause I, I, I looked at this. I'm like, that is creepy and frightening. And I have questions and it shows that if you take a look at the numbers at the, at the years and you take a look at those people who are now claiming a disability from 2020 to 2021, right? It, it, it shows the number uh, well under, is that 6,400? Well under 6,400 for the vast majority. And it actually uh, uh, valleys in 2021 under 6,000. And by this time of 2023, it explodes to 8,400. That's thousands of, 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 of persons. Now, what happened between 2021 and 2023? Yeah, COVID vaccines. Now, as Daniel Horowitz explains it, so we had a growth of 2.8 million people with disabilities. So he starts with this, this first red line. And, uh, and Sarah, make sure we, we post this over at TonyCats.com. That's, you know, the 2020, 2019, 2020 thing is where COVID began. And the second red line is when um, vaccines, quote unquote, went out. And he says, uh, draw your own conclusions. This is unparalleled at any time in history to have such a precipitous rise in disability over two years. And this chart goes back to 2000. And 10, it's a very, very weird chart. And by the way, you're, you're able to find it at Fred, F-R-E-D, um, uh, dot St. Louis Fed dot org. Right, that's where you got it from. And so that's where I share with you. I just wanted to look up the site, make sure I had the site. Like, that's a that's a fascinating thing to look at. Now, I, I have a series of questions about, well, what are the disabilities? And are the disabilities things that are being claimed or are the disabilities things that are being documented? As someone uh, pointed out, correlation is not causation. Now, I think this is why Daniel Horowitz says, draw your own conclusions. But I don't think one should actually draw their own conclusion. I think one should look at this and say, that's kind of fascinating. What does it mean? And then look to the data to figure out what conclusions come from of it, come from it. As CBS News reports, 7% of the US population reports long COVID conditions, many of which are disabling. Now, some, of, some people may not believe it. Al allow me for a moment. My father, who was 85, did not get vaccinated. It was, it was a conversation that, that we had. And his argument was, so at the time, it, he was, so he's 85 now, so he was 82, right? He said, Tony, I'm okay here. I'm okay there. If I get this vaccine, this vaccine gives me a problem, I'm never going to forgive myself. 
To which I said, Dad, you're 82. If you don't want to get vaccinated, don't get vaccinated. Now, that's exactly the same advice. Actually, it's, it's, it's quasi the same advice I gave to people with kids. Vaccinate a nine-year-old? I... I, I can't open my my eyes wide enough. I can't get more bug-eyed. Like, why would you Why would you even think of this? And I have friends who got kids vaccinated, and they're still my friends. Uh, we, we, we don't even talk about it. It is, it is just a clear disagreement. I don't understand it. If you were a woman uh, who was in her 20s and thinking of giving birth uh, or having kids in the future getting vaccinated, I don't, I, 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 don't, I don't understand it. If you were 50... I don't, I, that would probably be the age group, 40s, 50s, we're like, well, I'm not having kids, I've got a life ahead of me, you know what, my, I trust my doctor, I, I'm doing a thing. Like, I get that all too well. Not, we can disagree with it, but I'm talking about if we were to logically look at these things. You're 82. You've already, you already have lived longer than you ever imagined, which is very true in my father's case. Um, and, and don't want to do it, don't do it. He didn't do it. He got COVID for like a day and a half because they had had one of those tests. He wasn't feeling well and they took the test. I don't even know why they took the test. They took the test, COVID, and then like two days later, it was gone. And then my father got COPD, which is uh, this, this attack, if you will, on the lungs. Man never smoked a day in his life. Not a day in his life. And he's, oh, he's miserable with this. Because the guy likes to take a walk. Yeah, he uses a walker, but he likes to be out. He likes to be around people. He doesn't like being alone at all. And it makes it very difficult. He's infuriated by it. But it is very possible that that is a symptom of long COVID. Would the vaccine have stopped it? Not necessarily. Could the vaccine have caused other issues 100 percent. there are no solutions kitten there are only trade-offs as thomas soul explains these numbers are interesting and yes long covid is a thing but one should want to know what these numbers mean what are these people presenting with what are they claiming is the claim based on something that is medically documented or is the claim put out there to blame covid because it gets them a financial opportunity of course that can happen it is it's not that these numbers should be dismissed i don't believe in that i think these numbers should be looked at People out there for their political purposes will latch on to them and, and then scream them without any, doing any more research or dismiss them without doing any research. I think we should research them. But we should know that they're there. That's fascinating data. I will have it up at TonyCats.com. This is Tony Katz today. Israel has the right to defend itself against Hamas terrorism. It does not have the right to go to war against the Palestinian people and kill thousands of innocent children and women and men. I have asked President Biden to do two things. Number one, not support $10 billion for Netanyahu's right-wing government to continue their horrific military strategy. Number two, 
to support the United Nations re resolution, which would provide a humanitarian ceasefire so that the UN and other aid organizations can provide humanitarian relief that the Palestinian people desperately need. And this is why Bernie Sanders is completely incapable of running anything. First, it's a unity government right now in Israel because everybody in Israel wants to put an end to Hamas terrorism. Secondly, the war ends if Hamas ends. Third, the people get the aid that has already been sent into Gaza. If Hamas was gone, they're stealing the aid. Fourth, $10 billion doesn't go to, to Israel to support the taking out of terrorists, which you call terrorists, but it's okay that we give it to, to who? Vladimir Zelensky, then it's okay. That government's fine, but Netanyahu's isn't. You are incapable, Bernie Sanders, of running any country. You are incapable of running a Ben and Jerry's, also uh, filled with bigots. You're incapable. The same guy the other day who said that a ceasefire is impossible, you have to take out Hamas, but keeps calling for the humanitarian pause and how we should follow the UN. The UN doesn't want Israel to fight back. My gosh. And he makes a video walking through the halls like he's like he's got something to say. This isn't something to say. This is trying to make sure everybody still likes you on the socialist side. Gross. Find everything at TonyKatz.com tomorrow, everyone. Take care. <laughs>